the last week, this last week we began what I think is a six-week journey on the things that you and I, as a church, as a, a group of people, literally called out for the sake of the glory of Christ in our city, will hold fast to. These are the kinds of things we, we won't let go of. And so if you don't like them, we, we will find ourselves going, okay, well, well let us give, us give us a chance to win you over um, but, but we're not going to change our mind about this. I, I remember this uh, um, a couple of years, we're, so we're just a baby church plant. We've only been in existence uh, for like a little over two and a half years. And I remember early on, uh, we got a chance to get together. There was very few chairs at that point. And uh, I invited a, a person I had met. He was really curious about the church um, and had, had, a, had a recent experience in the church, but, but had come to hang out with us. And afterward, I was like, man, thank you for coming. I hope that you were encouraged with this good news uh, that we celebrate, you know, just kind of the general thing. And and, uh, and her response was she was just very, very disappointed in her time hanging out with us. And she said to me, she goes, well, you, you just, you, you, you talked about Jesus an awful lot. You, you just, everything you said was just all about Jesus. And, and, and you just kept talking more and more about Jesus. And, and I walked away from that conversation. I didn't, I, I, I'm, I don't know what I was supposed to say. I, I really, um, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you know what's the right thing. I just was kind of like, yeah, oh, how about that? And, and, and this is one of those things where, where like, what we're going to open up the Bible and see today, this is one of those things where if you find yourself going like, that's really annoying, we will just go, indeed. Indeed, that's, in, indeed, that will be annoying for you. But, but if, if us, like, talking about Jesus a lot is annoying to you, then you're right. Like, you, you will consistently be annoyed by us. We believe that we exist not for our own pleasure and glory, but we believe that our own pleasure comes from drawing glory to Christ. And we want to draw any attention away from ourselves. We want to talk about Him and Him alone, what He has done. And we want to resist the temptation to make this about us, such that even today, if you walk away from today, and you're on the drive, you know, they're driving away from this building, and, and if you find yourself talking about like the sermon or me or something else, we will consider that a massive failure. What we want you to leave talking about is how glorious and amazing Jesus is and how maybe you've seen something of Jesus today that you hadn't seen before. And so one of the things that we want to be unwavering on, we want to be uncompromising on, is what we believe God has called us to be and the purpose for which he's called us out, as we saw last week, and exist in the world. And we see it at the end of Matthew chapter 28. We're going to frustrate you with this. We won't change our mind about it because Jesus asks us to. So beginning in verse 1, Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, that's Saturday, the 7. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that's Sunday. It's important specifically for why you're here today. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. That is the tomb where Jesus was laid. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I, knew, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, he is not here, for he 
has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the or some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. My hope is that this becomes more than words on a page, print on paper, and becomes the word and the power of God to speak to you and to change you forever. I hope this so much that what I see here, I believe, is a crescendo, it's a climax, a turning point, if you will, of the entirety of the story of the Bible. And so I want to show you how, as a church, last week we saw that that ultimately the power that we have at all is the power of God in the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus, the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the person and the work of Jesus. That's the power. That's the only thing that will help. I can't help you. Good advice can't help you, but there is good news that can change you. And this is the thing we circle our entire lives around. Now, this is you're, you're in a good place uh, because I, about A decade ago when I began preaching and teaching, got the opportunity to open the Bible and teach it to people, Um, I don't know that I was very good at that particular thing. And so um, all I can tell you is that I really really wanted to preach the gospel, and I thought I was preaching the gospel. I thought I was doing it really well because I said the word gospel a lot in my sermons, right? And I just said it a lot, and just as long as I said the gospel this and gospel that, I felt like I was actually 
preaching the gospel. I thought it was pointing to Jesus. But what we find, I think, is that even beyond what we call it, if we're pointing to the finished and completed work of Jesus, we're on the right track. Apart from this, I would even say, we cease to exist. We cease to be the called out ones, literally the ecclesia, the church. We cease to be the ones who are called out for a specific purpose when we miss the good news at the center of at the very heart of our existence. But secondly, I think we find here, if the gospel is the central focus, then the byproduct is disciples. When, when, the, when the gospel is the focus, then the calling out and creating and multiplying of disciples of Jesus is the byproduct. That, this is where we get our identity. The, the byproduct of the gospel is disciples. You can have a, a group of people um, who, who call themselves the church, but that doesn't necessarily mean they'll be making disciples. But if you do have a group of people who love the gospel, they become disciples. And when they gather together, the Bible calls them the church. And if you have disciples, you have a church, but you don't necessarily have disciples if you just call it a church. But what I want to show you by two different ways, I think, is systematically, but also just narratively, how this plays out for us. And so what we do for the next couple of weeks, we saw this last week, there's, there's ways in which we think about the character of God systematically. And so I would encourage you in this, this is what we call like a systematic theology, thinking about the concepts, doctrines, beliefs of the historical church, Orthodox Christianity, over the last 2,000 years. We, we put them into systems and categories, so you begin to understand who Jesus is, what he's done, how we break those down. But there's another approach, and, and they're both very important, One, two of many, what we would call biblical theology. It's a, a narrative theology, a, an understanding of God by the story that the Bible tells. And we want to do both. We want to see the gospel as a central figure, a central theme, a central story throughout the, the entirety of the Bible, but we also want to see it as a concept that we measure everything by. And when we think about the character of God, we do it not just in, in terms of categories and concepts, but we also think of it in terms of a narrative and a story. And this is important, right? Because systematically, you could think about you, your own life or my life, what you do, what's your job, what's your profession, what's your title, uh, what, what are your accolades, what are your achievements? Those are the, the ways in which we can understand who you are. This is my vocation. I'm a pastor. I am a father. I am a husband. Those categories, those titles help you to understand who I am. But there's also another way to think about who I am, right? And, and, you, and you begin to see how they work together. I, I, was, I was born and raised the son of a pastor. I'm a preacher's kid, right? And so part of you, like, just even knowing that story is kind of like, oh, that explains a lot about you. Like, I get, I get why you are the way you are. That, that makes sense. Of course you are, right? I'm a pre I'm all the baggage that comes with that, like the, either the good or the bad preacher's kid, been both, all right? Tried them both out. They, they both fit really weird for me. And so I, I was a preacher's kid raised um, in, in the life of the church. I, uh, I, I worshiped sports. I played sports. I wanted to be known for sports. That was my idol. My heart was broken when I had to stop doing that. When, when being drafted was no longer an option, I went into a crisis mode and then, and then saw that that crisis was actually God pulling the idols of my heart away to see that he had crafted me for something else, namely to minister to people and share this good news of Jesus. Get them excited, not about how good I can play sports, but how good God is. Just even that brief moment of the story, you begin to understand a little bit more about me, right? You can begin to see, you're like, oh, 
I see it. I get it. Of course you did. And we do the same thing for the character of God. So I want to talk about the concepts here, namely the mission of the church, but I also want to talk about the mission of the church in light of the mission of God. In order to do so, I have to run through the entirety of the Scripture to point to something that I think is important. I tried as hard as I could to make this smaller, but I just couldn't. So here you go if you'd like this. Some of this is on our website anyway. There's really, if you want to write it all down, don't, don't try to scribble it all down. I'll, I'll paraphrase it. But this is what we believe. This is what we think. That the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and gathering these disciples in churches that they may worship the Lord and obey His commands both now as salt, light, and a city on a hill in this world and in eternity in His presence to the glory of God the Father. The mission of the church is to go into the world to make disciples. We declare the gospel. And when we make disciples, we gather them together and the people that we would call the church, the called out ones, and they begin to worship and live and multiply. And the way that they are salt and light in a city on a hill in the world begins to demonstrate something to the world that is compelling, addictive. They want it, and we give them the gospel. This is the mission of the church. First and foremost, it is for God's glory. And so we would summarize it to say simply, this is the mission. Make disciples that will make disciples to bear the image of a redeeming God in all of creation. This is why we exist. We want to glorify God. First and foremost, we, we want to glorify God. God gets glory. The, that's a word we don't often use, or certainly if we use it, it's not necessarily helpful, but think of it this way. I introduce myself. God reveals himself. So I shake your hand. Hi, I'm Jonathan. Give you some interesting information. Probably not that interesting. Hi, here I am. God doesn't do that. There's a whole other category for how God introduces himself to the world. It's called revelation. God reveals himself. Glory and attention comes to him because of how he has revealed himself. I shake your hand and tell you a little bit about me, and I get your attention for a couple of seconds until you forget it and have to ask me about it later. God reveals himself such that all things draw attention to him. He reveals himself in the character and the nature of his creation. He reveals himself in every little thing we see. We can see his fingerprints everywhere. He reveals himself. You see a picture of him everywhere. Where does that come from? If you want to follow me, let's find where that comes from. It comes from the very first chapter of the book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. If you want to begin reading with me, I want to read verse 27 and 28 of Genesis chapter 1. If not, you can just write it down, scribble it. And at the, cr the crowning achievement of God's creation, the understanding we have that God started all this, God is some mysterious, in some mysterious and miraculous way running things, creating things, brought this all into being. Verse 27, the crowning achievement of creation, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Did you catch that? He, he created them in His own image. There is something about the way God has created people that reflects His image. We're like a mirror. A mirror in and of itself has no value. It's worthless. In fact, the mirror only has value insofar as something glorious is, is in front of it. A mirror just reflects it. A mirror just shows back an image. You don't talk to an, 
to the mirror, you talk to the person standing in front of the mirror. And so also, you and I, human beings, have been created to demonstrate something unique about the character and nature of God. We are in His image. We reflect Him. What's beautiful and valuable about human beings can be seen because they somehow reflect who God is. Verse 28, it says, And God blessed them. And then God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God blessed them. He created them to reflect his image, and then he blessed them and said, okay, now that you reflect my image, go, make more images. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Go, go do this thing, okay? If you want to know how that happens, go ask your parents, okay? How do, how do human beings... Uh, engage in being fruitful and multiply, just ask your parents. Okay, I'm, not, I'm not here to explain that to you if that doesn't make sense. Go ask your parents, right? But, but go be fruitful, multiply. You're bearing my image. Go multiply more. Fill the earth. Did you catch that? Fill the earth. Why? Why would God want to fill the earth with his image bearers? So that the entirety of the world would see who God is, would glorify him rightly, love and delight in him for who he is. Well, what happens next? What do they do next? What do the next couple of chapters tell about us? Gives them one job, okay? Be fruitful, multiply. Got it? Good, go. But while you're doing that, don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. And they couldn't even keep that one thing. They, couldn't, they had one job, couldn't do it. And then the rest of the Old Testament is a retelling of how they continue to fail. They continue to rebel against God, even though God has created them to bear his image fruitfully and magnificently. They rebel against God and would rather glorify things other than God. They would rather glorify themselves. But this individual, what we call the cultural mandate, is the place where we begin to understand what God is doing. In fact, we would called this, as, as we would talk about this, the missio dei. That's a Latin phrase, a, a systematic term, mind you, about the mission of God. The mission of God. And we see at the beginning that the mission of God is that his image would be made visible throughout the world. Do you want to know what somebody's will is? Listen to the things that they command. And God's first command for these people was what? Go, be fruitful, fill the earth. God's mission, God's goal, God's ultimate purpose is that he would be glorified by making his image visible throughout the entirety of the earth. And his image can be seen in people until a couple chapters later when they break that, they destroy that, and sin enters in. And we come to find out that the key thing, the one most powerful obstacle that obscures the image of God in the world, that makes the world a difficult place to see the image of God is sin. Why are things the way that they are? Why are they broken? Sin. Sin enters in. And the image of God is then distorted. It's blurry. It's completely obscured even to where we can't even see it. And we wonder if he's real. We wonder if his image is really visible. Sin destroys it. It goes on and on and on. The sin carries on and on and on. Read the story. Read the entirety of the Old Testament. And time after time, you'll see this very imperfect story about people who, who kind of want to get it right, who God gives a, a second, third, an infinite number of alternate chances, but they still 
They still want their own glory. They don't want to glorify God, and they keep going over and over and over again, and God keeps forgiving, keeps restoring, keeps reconciling, keeps his end of the covenant to be their God and be for them until finally the mission of God, something happens, something breaks. The mission of God at this point is that the, his image would be, would be made visible throughout the world. But that image, that, that image of God that is broken by sin makes that image invisible until Jesus. Until Jesus. That image of God is invisible until Jesus. We saw this uh, uh, almost two years ago as we were walking through the book of Colossians together. And the first chapter tells us who Jesus is. Verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The first fruits of God create God's creative work was in fact Jesus. The first fruits of God's redemptive, recreative work, the new creation through the resurrection and the power over sin and death is Jesus. The image of the invisible God is made visible and manifest in Jesus. Jesus. We see God now through Jesus. The image of God is seen now in Jesus redeeming and restoring God's people by taking their place. So the mission of God to start the Bible was that his image would be made visible throughout the world. But now the image of God is made manifest and visible for us in Jesus. And the way that God wants to, catch this, introduce himself, reveal himself, draw attention and glory towards himself is in Jesus Christ. God could very well choose to make himself known as a God of wrath, as a God of justice. You and I, deserve it. You and I have done awful things and we deserve punishment for them. And God, should He choose, could very well demonstrate His wrath and mercy over your life forever and ever. He could pour out His wrath on you and say, this is what happens when you mess with an Almighty God. This is what happens when you rebel against a perfect and righteous and holy God. But instead of God choosing to demonstrate His glory, introduce himself to the world as a God of wrath and justice. He actually breaks protocol. He does a non-justice by demonstrating his character and nature by redeeming his people. And instead of punishing his people for the sin that they had committed, he walked into the experience and took all of the sin that they deserved. And instead of demonstrating his wrath on these people, he demonstrated his wrath on himself, on his son Jesus Christ. And instead of demonstrating justice and punishment on you and me, he came to be a part of the mix to demonstrate his mercy for you and for me. Such that now, when we hear this declaration that God has taken our place, restored us, and called us to receive this gift by faith, we call that declaration what? Good news good news you don't have to hang on a cross for your sins it's good news you don't have to be punished for your mistakes for your rebellion it is good news that someone took your place for you it is good news that jesus seeing that you were neither willing nor able to save yourself came in and took your place such that now all of the wrath that we deserve that we deserve he bore for us on the cross 
and all the perfect mercy and blessing that he deserved, he has given to the people who least deserve it. You and me. And that is good news. That's good news. It demands a response. And even if, if you would call yourself, maybe, maybe you're not a Christian and you're in this room maybe skeptical about who Jesus is, I want you to hear this good news on its merit. And I want you to know from the beginning, I want to compel you to believe it. I want, you to comp- I want to compel you to believe the possibility that this is true. And even just to begin to consider the possibility that God has poured out a gift of mercy and grace on you is the power to have a new life. And just to begin, even where you're sitting now, to be, begin to step toward this in faith, to begin to open your eyes to the possibility that this is true, that God is not out to destroy us, but God is for us in Jesus, is the power to give joy and hope. He's done something. He's finished it, and we celebrate it as good news. Now, what do we do? What do we do in response to this? Well, that gets us to Matthew chapter 28, doesn't it? So the story up to this point was God wanting to demonstrate his character through the image of God being born by people then we're at an impasse because they failed, they sinned, and the image of God is difficult for us to see, if not impossible to see in one another. It's darkly seen, maybe dimly seen, but it's visibly seen in Jesus. It's visible. Did you catch this? He, he walked out of the grave. He did the one thing that you and I could never do. He, he went to death, but then he walked out victoriously. And the first thing that he does, did you catch this? And in the, in the first, remember the, remember the first mandate, the cultural mandate, when all things became new in creation in Genesis, was to be fruitful and to multiply. Did you catch the first command that showed up at least three times in Matthew 28 alone? In the new creation that Jesus has brought about by his resurrection. There's a new creation. Did you get it? There's, there's a, there are new rules. The old rules are that when you die, you stay dead. The old rules are that when we bury you and put you six feet under, you stay there. Things start to eat you. It's a gross bad deal. But there's a new world. There's a new kingdom. There's a new creation. There's a new world that God is creating for us in Jesus, a brand new creation. Did you catch the rules? They're upside down. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. The people who are dead in this new kingdom don't stay dead. They don't stay dead. And Jesus walks out of the grave. The fun part, we'll see this at Easter as well, is I don't know if you caught that, the angel removes the stone that people couldn't remove. It wasn't so he could walk out, it was so that we could see in. He walks through walls, remember? He walks through walls and shows up to his disciples. It's a fun thing, it's a fun thing. He's, he's showing the image of himself in, in Genesis, and he opens up the tomb so that we would see his image in the emptiness of this tomb. And he says at least different, a few different, he says, don't be afraid, okay, calm, calm down. Calm down. And the angel gives us the first command in the new creation. Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. The first command, please, have no fear. Know that what God has done for you casts out all fear. Verse 6, he's not here, he's risen. Now come, come in, come in, come in. Did you get this? Come in. See the place where he used to be. See it. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Did you get that? The first thing that the angel, the messenger literally of the Lord, told the people is go and tell someone. 
There's a new kingdom where dead people don't stay dead. It happens again. Then Jesus in verse 10 said to them, don't be afraid, okay? But then what? Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. Go and tell my brothers, for there they will see me. And as if that weren't enough, his last words that we see here, did you catch it? It's a command. Jesus says, I've got all the authority. Now go and make disciples. In Genesis, God created people to demonstrate his character. They would see his image born throughout the world. They were fruitfully multiplying such that when people would see this perfected order in humanity, they would see the image of God reflected to them. But they sinned and they broke God's law. They rebelled against God and pushed back against God such that they were at an impasse. And God, wanting to redeem them, restore them, and demonstrate his glory to the nations, steps in and makes disciples that now multiply, that are now fruitful, that now are called to populate the earth. This is throughout the entirety of the Bible. This isn't just something that shows up in the New Testament. This is a fulfilled promise. My favorite, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 23 and 24. This is what we do. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Now declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Psalm 67 puts it this way. We pray for blessing. Why do we want God to bless us? May God bless us and keep us. May he be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Verse 2, why? So that your way may be known on the earth. Your saving power among all the nations. Sin and death does not win. God is going to restore it and demonstrate his glory to the nations. And the way that he does it, he sent Jesus to do it. Psalm 96, declare his glory among all the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. Jesus steps in. And his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, we come to find out that God is restoring all things, still magnifying himself through, bearing his image, but he's doing it uniquely. He's doing it in the world. And I want you to join there if you want to um, in John chapter 20. And if you're a highlighter, I want you to highlight this. If, you're, if you are, are a circler of the Bible, I want you to do this. I know that sounds and feels sacrilegious for some of you, right? I mean, if you have a King James Bible in your lap, obviously don't write on it because then, you know, that's awful and sacrilegious. Um, but if it's not a King James Bible, that's a bad joke. So I want you to highlight it. I want you to tweet this. I want you to, whatever it takes, text this to yourself, okay? So if you get your way to John chapter John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying, he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world to the point in John 20, after his resurrection, after he's walked out of the grave, just like Matthew tells us in chapter 28, verse 21 of John chapter 20. If you're a highlighter, I want you to scribble it. If you want to write it, tweet it, Facebook it, whatever, whatever you do, Instagram your Bible in a cool font that people can see this, whatever, whatever it takes for you to remember this and not forget this, that God has not abandoned us, but in... John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, remember the words, don't be afraid. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Did, did, you, did you catch what just happened? The missio Dei, the mission of God to demonstrate his glory through bearing his image to all of creation shows up visibly for us in Jesus. And this is crazy. The mission of God, the, the great and mighty and righteous king and creator of all the world does what with this mission? 
He goes, here. Now you do it. In the same way that God has called me, Jesus says, I am calling you. In the same way that he has not abandoned you, but instead has sent me to you, so also, now do not abandon the world, but go to them. This is it. This is our purpose. This is our mission. This is what we do. This is the sole purpose for our existence. So much so that right after this, not only did did God send Jesus to accomplish this, but Jesus begins to send by the power of his spirit, you and me. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You guys probably have this memorized. We dug through this, the very last words of Jesus. He says, hang around here, don't go just yet, but in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says you're going to receive power. What's that power we saw last week? It's the power of God to save, but this power is going to work through the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and all Samaria. And then you ought to think of Chronicles. You ought to think of Psalm 67 and Psalm 96. You be witnesses to what? The ends of the earth. Habakkuk says it this way, that one day the glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the water's cover the sea. How much water is there in the sea? A lot. That's how much glory will fill the earth, more than can be counted or quantified. You see this also in Acts chapter 13. They begin to start to make disciples. It says, the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, whether the outsiders, that you may bring salvation, where? To the ends of the earth. Mark chapter 13 Jesus says in the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Romans 10, for everyone, verse 13 begins, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? We get an answer. How are they to hear without someone preaching? Revelation 14 ends this way. And I saw another angel flying directly overhead. This angel had an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and every tribe and language and people. This is who we are. Just like last week, I I, I don't want you to stop and think about whether or not this is something that this church should do, and whether or not you should join in this church in this task. Here's here's what I think. I I don't care if you jump in or out of this church to do this thing. Here's what I think. God's called you to do this regardless. And so if this church, if these people called out for this purpose, isn't the people to which you desire to belong and jump on mission with, that's cool. But then let us help, help send you to the church that does this. Let us help send you. Let us help mobilize you. Because it is not an option as to whether or not you will do this. It's just if you will do this, when and where you will do it. Will you do it? Are you going to do it? When will you do it? Will you do it? The image of God is being born now by the people redeemed and reconciled by Christ. Such that now when they see you and they see me and they listen to us and they go, what's going on with these people? They realize that God has done something miraculously. He hasn't abandoned us, but instead he has reconciled us, transformed us, such that now you and I, who once were dead in our sin, are now alive in Christ. We have a joy that can't be taken away. 
Jesus says, all authority is mine. Now go, make disciples of the nations. Jesus fulfills. He ultimately obeys the command in Genesis 1 that you and I fail to keep. He is fruitful. He multiplies through the declaration of the gospel and the making of disciples, the image of God to the ends of the earth. So I want you to have a zeal for the gospel and a zeal for the glory of God amongst the nations. I want you to jump on this mission. I want you to be a part of this because this is what God is doing. So let's break this down, okay? Let's, let's unfold this with a, a few, I think, practical ways that God has now not only sent Jesus, but as Jesus says, so it's in the same way that God has sent me, I'm sending you. And this is what I think you'll find. There's a few different places uh, where, where we see this, okay? So for the rest of the Bible, again, we're going to think narratively. If you want to, you can turn to, to your, uh, your table of contents, but you'll see for the rest of the Bible a response to this movement. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us the story of who Jesus is, what he's accomplished on our behalf. And every single one of them ends with a declaration and a command, go, do this. And when you do this, this is what will happen. You will become a people called out with this purpose. And what we find, if you look at the titles of all the rest of the books of the Bible, they're names of churches, they're names of places where people are being called out. Why? Because the church is the primary strategy for mission. It's the primary strategy for mission. Such that even when we talk about making disciples, we are talking about a specific category, a specific archetype, if you will, such that now these disciples follow Jesus and they do it together in a thing called an ecclesia, a called out group, a church. This is their mission, to make disciples. This is what they do. Paul says to a church, woe to me if I don't declare the gospel. May I be cast out, may I be cursed if I don't declare the gospel. But what I want you to see is that this is how this works. So this is going to be interesting. For those of you maybe who are new to this, this won't sound surprising. You, you've seen the life of this church. You've seen this happen in the life of our church. Right? We make disciples. We baptize them so that they visibly see in their life and in ours the visible marks of Jesus dying, but then doing something in a new creation with new rules, not staying dead, such that you and I now know this will be our story as well. We do this together. But if for those of you who maybe have been like raised in the church or maybe you've been a part of the church, you're going to come at this with some baggage because the church is not perfect. It's a group of people, remember, reconciled by God, not reconciled by their own merit. But the primary mode of making disciples of the nations is the church. The local church, the actual church, the church that is visible. Not that some invisible kingdom that you kind of nebulously see in the world, but like a visible embassy family, structure, a body, such that now what Jesus was doing, the body of Christ, namely his church, has picked up by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is who we are. This is what we were called to be. This is what we won't waver on. So you'll say, well, what about the universal church? What about all the Christians everywhere? Well, yeah, there's a place for that. There's a way we can zoom in and see the acts of the local church and individuals, but there's a way to zoom out and see the movement of the church across the nations. But here's what I would tell you. 
There's no such thing as one destroying the other. And this is what I will tell you. If you are in fellowship with the universal church to the extent that it harms the local church, you're out of line. You're doing it wrong. And you are likely fulfilling some form of idolatry, some sort of pseudo-biblical picture that you've created for yourself. Because if what you're doing for Christians everywhere hurts actual Christians right around you, you're doing it wrong. You're messing it up. But so also, if you're in fellowship with the local church to the extent that you're harming the universal church, well, you're out of line as well. You've got some sort of idol. If, if what we do as a local church harms other churches, we're doing it wrong. We take this seriously. This is a big deal. This is the bride of Christ. You can't badmouth my bride without making me angry. And so therefore, you can't badmouth the bride of Christ, abuse her, take advantage of her, prostitute her out for your own idols, and expect Jesus to sit idly by and go, well done. This is what God has called us to be, to multiply, to live, to make disciples. And if we're harming one another and doing it, we've missed it. The Holy Spirit is what's doing this. It, it's bringing about the power. This is happening. In the last couple of years, I've gotten to watch this. Uh, some of you who I know now, I, I can't make eye contact with you, but like, because um, I, I get weepy on this one, but like, this is happening. Some of you are not the same people I knew two years ago. And it's because God is shaping you and he's teaching you. He's creating you to look more and more like Christ. Oh, sure, it will be imperfect until Jesus comes back, but it is happening. And you begin to look more and more like Jesus, and it's glorious. Because when I wonder, well, I wonder what God is like, I get to look at you. And I go, oh, that's what God's like. In the ways that people show me mercy and forgive me, I go, oh, that's, I I'm so glad God called you out to be a part of our church because now I remember what God's like. He's not judgmental and harsh, but he's merciful. He convicts of sin and he draws us into what's better. The gospel is the life of the church. But now the church, because of the gospel, has been formed in such a way that it overflows to the declaration to the nations. But this is what this means. Our mission to make disciples is what we pour everything into. How we define that? Our mission is to make visible the mission of God, the image of God through the reconciled body of believers in the world. And this is what we pour all of our lives into. And we measure things by this. This is what we want to do. We don't want to fight about other stuff. We want to fight about this. We want to fight for this. We want to make disciples such that they multiply and make more disciples. This is what we get excited about. And this is what we won't compromise on. So this is what this means. If our mission is to make disciples, then we get to let go of other things. Or so some would say the mission of the church is to like do good deeds and fix all that's broken in the world. Okay, maybe. If we're, I mean, after all, if we're fulfilling Jesus' command, right, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, yes, we'll, we will see the naked and clothe them, we'll see the one in prison and visit them, we will see the hungry and feed them. We will. But here's the ultimate goal. We do so as leverage to make disciples. So do I think that we should invest in things like drilling uh, drilling wells in sub-Saharan Africa so that people will have fresh water. Absolutely. Let's do that. But here's what I also know. If we don't go to sub-Saharan Africa and giving the living water that Jesus gives, that only Jesus gives, it flows out into others, then we haven't helped them. We may have satisfied a temporary thirst, all the while distracting from an eternal thirst. 
So we want to help our city. We want to serve our city. We want to work. We believe we've been justified by Christ, so we want to work towards justice. But ultimately, our picture of justice is different, is different than the world's. And we can now work toward justice and equality and, and, and all of these beautiful things that, are, that, are, that I think our churches want to get together and do. But, but if we don't ultimately point toward our ultimate justice, our ultimate justification before God that is in Christ, then we've done them a disservice. We make disciples. That means we give, we invest, and we go. We do this. We do it unwaveringly. We don't ask for permission. So here's what I'm calling you to do. I want you to be a part of giving, sending, and going to make disciples. That's it. I want, in the months to come, I, here, here's an aspirational goal. I want everyone who, who's in contact with our church, who's a part of our church, here's what I want. I would want them to be engaged in being discipled by someone and actively discipling someone else. Why? Why? Why would I do that? Because Jesus said so. Is that, is, that a, is that a high and lofty goal? Yeah, it absolutely is. How do we do that? We think this happens in, first and foremost in the context of gospel community, all right? So this is, I'm, I want to teach you and I love you by the preaching of God's word, but this isn't the fullness of discipleship, right? You can hide sin and sit back there and you can hide deception from where you're sitting. I, I can't see it from here. I can't. But the closer we get, the more we realize that Christ-likeness is formed across a number of different experiences and spectrums, and we want to be a part of those. We want to be like Jesus, pick up the work of Jesus, make disciples that go to the nations. We want to go, we want to send, and we want to be a part of it. So in just a minute, we're going to take up an offering, okay? Here's what I believe. Every penny that is going into that basket is going to go to make disciples. That's what you pay me to do. We believe this so much, we believe that that's what the pastor is for, is to equip the saints for the for the work of ministry. What's the ministry? Well, we just figured it out. It's to bear the image of God by making disciples to the nations. This is what we do. We restore, we reconcile, we forgive, we love, we care. Why? So that ultimately disciples would be made to the nations. I want you to judge me on that. Like, are you, are you, are you actively creating a context in which we're making disciples? Well, we don't want to pay you. The Bible says a workman is worth his wages. Well, what's my work? My work is to make disciples and equip you to do the same. But in addition to that, we want everything we spend to do this. So I'm going to invite you into being generous toward this, all right? 25% of what we give to this, what you give to this church gets out of here. We give to 10% toward planting churches and sending missionaries in our continent and the continents around the world. We give an additional 10% because we believe in this so much. We're generous, right? We're, I mean, it's not a huge check because we're, we're babies, but we're already giving more than most people I know. So this is, you have to pat yourself on the back for being a part of a generous church, all right? We give an additional 10% to church planting in our region. Right now, when you give to this church, you're giving to help plant a church in, uh, um, in Sturgis, South Dakota. And there's some lost people in Sturgis. I don't know if you know that. Uh, and we're also helping plant a church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Like, this is happening. We're not talking about one day we're going to get on mission. We're going to be, no, we're going to do it now. We're going to have, this is going to be a part of it. And we're an additional 5% toward giving to church planters and church planting organizations to make disciples of the nations. We're going to give. We're going to be generous. I'm not asking you to do anything we don't already do ourselves. We're going to give, go, and send. We're going to make this happen. Because here's what I think you will find. Here's what I think you will learn. You will do evangelism. You will do it. You will share the good news of your God. 
who that God is, who that God is, is what's at stake. The culture's doing it. The culture is telling you what to invest in, what to spend your money on, what to glorify, what to spend your time and energy and attention on. The culture is after you. It wants your attention. It's telling you there is a God and you ought to worship it. You ought to bow down. And you are doing the same. You are discipling people. You're telling them who God is and what they ought to do. You will do evangelism, period. You don't believe me? Just ask some people about some stuff. You see some parents in this room? Ask them about their kids. They'll do evangelism. Look how valuable and beautiful and wonderful this child is, right? I mean, ask a grandparent, right? Hey, tell me about your grandkids. What? Yes, all the time. And they're sharing. They're sharing good news, aren't they? This is what they value. It's what they love. It's what they cherish. People do this already. You do this. Some of you, all I have to do is talk about politics, and you, you're off to the races, telling me about what's important, what deserves attention, what I should think about, what I should change my mind about. Compel me to your side. Some of you, I mean, look, just, just talk about, this is a fun one, uh, vaccines, uh, to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. Oh, snap. You got some passionate evangelists, right? I mean, and they, you, and you should, it's a life, come to our side. If you don't believe me, you're, it's life or death, right? It, talk to someone about homeschool versus private school versus public school. They get excited, right? To be a vegetarian or not a vegetarian, right? People are jacked up about it. People are excited. Gluten or not gluten? Organic or all the other stuff that I like, <laughs> right? Like, just, just, just put it out there and you will see how excited people are. And it sounds like evangelism. It sounds like they're passionate about something. It sounds like their eyes have been opening to something that's revolutionary and that everyone ought to hear about it. One of my close friends, I'm not going to look up because uh, I want to I share with you something that compelled me and helped me and I want to leave it with you. Um, so, a close friend of mine uh, is, is a part of a, a uh, let's, let's call it a, a health and supplement and fitness plan for eating and diet and exercise. It's really cool. And it's changed their life, right? Sounds like the gospel. I, wanna, I want you to hear uh, a text message that I received. Hey, come to my house tonight at 7.30 if you can, exclamation marks. I've been on the, and I'm just, leave this out, the fill in the blank, health plan, and I've seriously never felt better. And I want to share it with everyone I love. I have some awesome team members in town, and they want to share, 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 exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Please come by if you can. It's so great. Friend, you will do evangelism. You are telling people right now what they ought to think about Jesus. And you will either tell people how glorious and gracious he is for redeeming you, or you will tell people that you can ignore him. And you will tell people that they actually should believe in something else that you're excited about. You will share the gospel. You will share about your God. You will glorify your God. But in the life of this church, let the glory always go to Christ and Christ alone for his redeeming and saving work.
let us humbly and graciously remove everything else that is not the gospel. Let us spend frugally and wisely in making disciples and sending them and kindly say no to every other option. Let us graciously chop off everything else that deters from this one thing that Jesus has done. Let us do it. Because if we don't, then what are we telling people about God? What are we telling them will ultimately save them? Let's pray. God, I, uh, I, I step into territory here that is beyond anything that I can understand or comprehend. I, uh, I step into to something here that, that I, I, I don't fully understand and don't fully have the ability to explain. So may your words remain here today and may the rest of the words fall away. Are there some in this room that maybe they, they have not opened their eyes to the possibility that following you Submitting to your authority. Seeing the life that you give really is, is a solution. Um, there's many in this room that maybe they hesitate to see you for who you say that you are. Would you begin to open their eyes? Realize that there, there's something going on here. God, you've, you've accomplished something for us in Jesus. And just to begin to co- contemplate the truthfulness of that is, is the ability to have new life, new purpose, new joy. For those of us, if we have in some way minimized your gospel, if we have somehow invested our time and energy into things that glorify us, but not instead, uh, if we've instead invested in these things rather than letting your image be made known through the redeeming work of Jesus making disciples amongst the nations, would you you begin to to allow us to confess that? Would you allow us to admit that we we glorify other things? We, We really would just rather talk about anything else. Our passions are about football teams and our passions are about things that won't last. Would you give us a passion for this eternally good news? Maybe if we've demeaned your church, God, if we've, we've begun to belittle and maybe minimize the significance of the bride for which you've laid down your life to save, would you, would you forgive us of this? Would you remind us that in the end, Everything else burns. Everything burns. It's only the church that prevails against the gates of hell. God, we confess that we've minimized it. We sometimes we demean it. We've belittled it. We've, we've added to its brokenness. Would you begin to, to allow us to confess that? Give us a space and grace to admit that. Turn away from that. Stir, us, stir in us a love for your gospel, but also for your people. Woe to us if we do not make this the central focus. Draw us to yourself now. Redeem us, restore us, that we may be sent out. Do for us that which we can never do for ourselves, such that it becomes something, a movement we can't keep a secret, that even persecution and oppression can't stop. We love you for this, Jesus. In your name we ask it, amen.